Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, champagne sharks? This is Trevor. You could find me over at champagne sharks on Twitter or at Ricky Rawls, Champagne Sharks is the group account. Ricky Rawls is the personal account. Or just basically go to ChampagneSharks.com. Um, become a patron to the show, Patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. In addition to extra episodes, we're going to be adding more perks. So also, even if you are already a patron, um, consider signing up for a yearly subscription instead of just a $5 a month subscription or the $10 a month subscription because that gets you a 10% discount. So that's pretty cool. But let's get right to it. I will uh, start with the first time guest. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Kamaria. Um, I don't know what else to say. I'm just I'm an illustrator, painter living in San Bernardino, an hour away from L.A. Um, that's pretty much it. And we have returning guests to the show, Chris Lee. If you don't mind just reminding people who you are or for people who haven't heard you before. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'm Chris. I'm from the Escape from Plan A podcast. Uh, I was last here a couple of months ago talking about Squid Game. Yeah, I've been on here several times before. So hopefully you listeners recognize me. Yeah, and Kamaria as a, a resident of the Los Angeles area is a huge fan of Insecure. So she sounds sad. At any point of this episode, you know that's why she's in active mourning. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, it's very unfortunate, you know. My glimpse to LA has been gone. We're here to talk about a book. I don't have the book up in front of me, but I'm trying to get it up. But while I'm getting it up, let me just bring up what the name of the book. It's called The Other Black Girl. And I forgot what made me want to read it. But I think it was basically seeing a bunch of bidding wars. One of the things that Chris and I always talk about, and uh, Kamaria is a fan of the show who I met through her uh, fandom in the show, but I've always liked Kamaria's insights. So I always uh, made a note to myself. I wanted to have her on at some point, but I wasn't sure uh, what to have her on over. And in this game, I said, oh, I think this might be uh, Upper Alley. And she'll tell us if it was, but the book is called The Other Black Girl. What got it on my radar was that it had a incredible backstory, as in there was a huge bidding war I read about three different bidding wars for this book, and I'm trying to pull it up so I don't go off of memory, but there was one bidding war for, well, the first bidding war I heard about was it got adapted to Hulu. All three of these bidding wars, I think, were before it was even published, and maybe even before it was even finished being typeset, because I think in the acknowledgments or thank yous, it thanks like the people at Hulu or something, if I remember correctly. So that's how much buzz this had. Like it wasn't even, the ink wasn't even wet yet. Jesus and, Christ. So mm-hmm. books these days, in the acknowledgement, they've are, they're already thanking the TV adaptation. I'm pretty sure. God damn it. Let me, let me double check <laughs> to make sure. But that, that really surprised me because 
I was already surprised at these huge bidding wars before the book was even finished being written. But now apparently they have them before uh, the book. Now they have even the adaptation before uh, the book is is written. I was very surprised, surprised by that. Actually, I don't think it's the first time, if I remember correctly, and I pray I'm not getting this wrong, but I think even in um, that other book, I could be wrong, but I think in the, the book Such a Fun Age, I believe she might thank Lena Waithe in that as well. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And at the end, when I read the thank you. So, um, again, I'm going off of memory. So I hope I'm not hope I'm not wrong. But um, when I'm pulling up the book, does anybody want to volunteer to give their initial impressions? Uh, Kamari, you want to go first? Sure, I'll go. Um, I mean, my initial impressions. I would say it's just it's just a book that was made to make money. Because I mean, it's a it's basically this kind of weird knockoff of Get Out, but without any interesting insights that at least Get Out had. And it's it's one of the most superficial books I think I probably ever read <laughs> in terms of like the content. It's like. I think you guys were talking about it in the chat. It's like reading American Psycho with just how much consumption is in the book, but it, it goes, it really doesn't go anywhere or have any meaning. And I guess it's just a superficial analysis of like what it means to be a black woman. Um, that's what I think. So yeah, that, that's my initial like thoughts about it. What about you, Chris? Uh, so recently, you know, with it being the new year, I went back and I, you know, I, I write down every book I read because Unfortunately, there are a lot of books I read I forget because they were just so like blah. Uh, fortunately, this book I definitely did not forget, but mainly because it was so bad. I would say it was it was top like bottom three worst books I read uh, last year. That's what I thought. And Kamari, I think you're spot on. It, it's extremely shallow. The whole central premise of the book, I mean, spoiler alert, but that's why you're listening, right, listeners, is that there is this magical like devil hair grease, and the thing it does is that it makes the black women who use it basically suck up to white people in corporate America. And I, and I was waiting for the twist to get more. And I'm like, you don't need a hair cream to do that. Like all you need is to send, send people to like an Ivy league school. You know, that's, I, I could not believe that's how weak it was. And I mean, people compared to get out, at least get out had a premise, which shocked people. At least the first time they saw it, this was just, wait, that's it. And I mean, we'll, we'll get deeper into it later, but yeah, it was just so, it was like the weakest punch. It was trying to be subversive. It was trying to be, uh, you know, take shots at a very white industry, but yeah, it was so weak. I think something that's interesting about the book is I feel like it's a book that, um, actually, let me just back up for a second. Uh, there's a, we did a live stream a couple of nights ago and I had brought up the idea of a creative cargo cults and, you know, a cargo cult is, this thing that used to happen in uh, the jungles, I don't want to go too long into it because I already talked about it at length in the live stream, but this idea that these uh, tribes that used to live in like, these jungles and stuff, like occupying armies from the West, uh, used to set up these little military outposts slash runways. And on these runways, they had like a makeshift, they had like a little makeshift landing strip and planes, these cargo planes would come and leave and they would drop off cargo and take cargo. And these people who were observing um, this stuff, I guess a lot of times like people would share um, you know, things that came from the plane sometimes with the, with the natives and stuff, or they either thought it was just a giant bird or some kind of, um, 
machine from the gods, supposedly, to hear the people from the West tell it. I mean, I don't really know what they thought it was, but basically, uh, when the military would leave, the planes would stop coming. You know, they would abandon the outpost or whatever. And these people wanted the plane to come back, but they didn't have the sophistication to understand what made the plane come. So they would try to do they didn't, understand, they didn't understand the correlation and the causation. So they would just try to do a myriad of things they saw the uh, occupiers doing to see if it would make the plane come. And they would call them like cargo cults. And they would think that they, they were trying to summon um, something from the gods or the spirits or whatever. And one of the things that you know they used to do was stack up like crates and everything. And then the plane would arrive pick up the plate, the crates and drop off new supplies. And they would try that. Then they got more and more complicated and they would do things like uh, dress up, make, make their own military uh, facsimile outfits and then try to do what did it call? I usually have the name uh, when the regiment walks. Um, marching. Yeah. Marching. But there's, there's a, a name for the whole thing, like um, not just movements, but for some reason, the word uh, drill, I guess drills, like they do try to do like, you know, drills and marching and all, and all that stuff. Cause a lot of times the, the military would be in the process of, you know, going through their, their drills when the plane landed. So they even started doing like complicated drills. And I feel like what happened with this girl and get out and with a lot of these people, cause there's been so many get out ripoffs. There's been bad hair spell this book, um, the new, the new eyes on the prize. For some reason, they put horror imagery in that. Antebellum. Antebellum. That's another one. Um, yeah. I heard there's a new one coming out where, it, again, it's kind of like a ripoff of Antebellum where it's a modern day slave plantation or something. Oh, so. that's crazy. That's like a copy of a copy. That's really, <laughs> really going to be bad. Uh, I think I said good hair, but good hair is a Chris Rock movie. I, I meant bad hair. It's one called bad hair. And but I feel like all these people are like a giant cargo cult. Where they saw Get Out and they thought, oh, like I think the I think the reason why Get Out did well was because it was a original at the time premise and it was a very specific type of story that wasn't being shown a lot. Like everything was about uh, police brutality and struggle and struggle porn, you know. And this was something uh, that I think was a breath of fresh air, whether you liked it or not. It was you know kind of new. And instead of thinking, hey, the lesson to take, the reason for success was that it tried something new and had something to say. They just took it literally at the cargo cult and said, okay, let's do everything that was in Get Out. And that will make the same success um, come. But I mean, sadly, in a way, they're kind of right. Because if they didn't want critical acclaim, just money, I mean, she got a lot of money. So my question to you was like, is she right about the cargo cult or not? Because I mean, depending on her on her goal, maybe it did work. I mean, she got paid a shit ton. You did note, though, that on Goodreads, it seemed like all the reviewers were Actually, black women hated this book. Yeah, but does that even matter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that that is true. But hey, if you're going for artistic integrity, I guess it's a big L. But oh, I'm sure she's not. (laughs) I don't think anybody who would write a book like this is worried about that. This book was so long too. I got it on on Kindle from the library. So when you borrow an ebook, you don't really know how thick it is as opposed to having a physical thing. It just kept going on and on. I looked it up on one of those websites that kind of estimates how long a book is. This is almost a hundred thousand words. And usually these types of like modern contemporary uh, novels are somewhere like 80,000, uh, give or take. I'm like 100,000 words of nothing. It just went on and on and had this whole weird uh, subplot with, that was back in 20, 30 years ago. I had no idea what the hell that was. Changed uh, perspective to first person. It was very confusing in a bad way. Yeah. And here is 
here is, you know, like I used to take experimental fiction classes when I was in college. And one of the things that they used to always tell you, whether it's cliched or not, they said, um, we had this very renowned uh, experimental fiction author as our teacher. And everybody wanted to jump right into just writing crazy stuff. Like this guy's novels are very weird and have no structure or whatever. And everyone just wanted to jump to being weird. And he would try to always tell us like you have to get the basics down before you can, you know, take risks like, or be experimental. Like you don't know how to just write regular. And that was kind of hard for a lot of people to kind of wrap their heads around. And I feel like that's a problem with this, this woman. Switching the things that you said could be good like switching from first person to second to third. I've read books where they've switched from omniscient to first person to second person in the same book and different and managed to capture different voices and everything. But I mean, I feel like this woman was running before she could walk. Like she was not ready to try anything that experimental given uh, how bad she was at the basics. And I really didn't want to just beat up on this book, but you guys just hit the ground and, and <laughs> went running. But it is hard to kind of think of positives. Like even the positives I could think of as I was reading, uh, I, I told you guys, because we were doing a chat while we were reading the book, like, you know, not like a live chat, but like we, we had like a little forum type of thing where we would share our thoughts as we were reading. And every time I was going to give it props for being a like great satire, I would realize, oh, wait a minute, this is earnest. This is 100% real. <laughs> yeah, there- it's like you can never tell if, this character is actually supposed to be a caricature or a joke, or if she genuinely <laughs> feels that type of way. Like there's moments where she really correlates like activism to like retweeting something. And like, I don't know if that's earnest or if she is being sarcastic, but then I think the reason why she does the third person only for Nella's character, and that's like the main character in the story, is I think because it's so her that she can't have it in first person. Because I think I was watching her dad interview her and her dad said that at points when he was like reading the book, he would call um, Nella Zakia because it was so much like her. So I think like she had to make it third person because it's like almost autobiographical at that point. Oh, that's a great first of all, insight. For, first of all, her dad interviewed her. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, Trevor, like Trevor and I, we've read interviews where writers are being interviewed by their best friends who are also writers. So we're like, oh God, this is obviously just a, basically a PR yeah. <laughs> uh, press conference. <laughs> now we're getting actual family members. Oh dear lord. But um no, uh Kamar, you're totally right cuz I before this for prep I watched an interview that the author did on Washington Post and she she outright said Nella is very much her. You can tell just from the the biography like I think the real uh Harris went to uh UNC Chapel Hill, Nella went to UVA. They both worked in publishing. They're, They're both, both obsessed with their hair. They, they both, both grew up not being around black people in the interview, um, Harris said like, basically she um, did not start having like natural hair until Eric Garner's murder, which is 2014. She's only seven years ago. And I think she's in her late twenties. So this is like her probably in, in like the last year of college or even graduated, which, you know, tracks to the to Nella character who talked. I mean, I, I, I want to go into some actual like Uh, passages from the novel that I highlighted that I think are worth going into. But she talks about how growing up, all the black kids called her Oreo. It's obviously her. And she admitted it. So it's not even, there's no even, uh, like going investigating, it's not even needed. She just came on and said it. So (laughs) Uh, a question I have for you guys. Actually, uh, you're about to say something, Kamaria. So I'll let you say it before I ask my question. 
wondering about that interview. Did she directly correlate like Eric Gardner's Eric Gardner's murder like made me want to go natural? Yeah, she said that. Oh wow, that then that really makes so much sense of anything in this book because she correlates anything that is actual like anything that has to do with actual black suffering or like the black experience in America and completely just turns it into like her superficial. Not to say that like going natural is superficial, but to to the extent that you would compare it to like a man dying and like a family like losing their like their father, I think that's that's really interesting. Especially as a response to it, like you know that's that's like like you said um, around the time that Eric Garner died, I was already becoming more conscious about certain things like i had just gone natural i mean even that's a little tone deaf but at least you're kind of saying like hey this was a small thing that was already starting and then this big thing happened but to actually proffer it as a response to that is extra tone deaf that's that's kind of crazy like you know, I, mean, like, I can see it being one of the things you do but it seemed like that was the, the main thing. thing yeah <laughs> yeah and, and that's what was kind of funny like this book the main character full of superficialities like that. And it was a whole passage. And what Kamaria said about American Psycho, I think is a comparison because American Psycho had this long string of internal superficial dialogue of Patrick Bateman, but it was superficial on purpose. Like it's meant to be satirical, whereas this thing, what's funny is I think she called it satire, but I don't know what is actually satire, satirizing since all the actual parts that are satire worthy are the earnest parts of the book you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and, she, she has long passages that are just as superficial and horrifying as the american psycho passages except they're 100 percent <laughs> earnest and it took me a while to get it so i was sending them and i was like hey guys i think i might be wrong about this book this is a hilarious caricature of like a wannabe social justice influencer and the full self-importance and the cluelessness and tone deafness and then a couple pages in i was like oh, wait maybe this is real yeah i mean in that same washington post interview she said how she had worked in publishing like nella for like two to three years and she got the idea to write this uh you know supposedly scathing kind of like expose of how white the industry was and she talked about how happy she was actually that like the industry and her colleagues all embraced the book and she was like oh that made me so glad i'm like wait a minute that should be your first clue yeah exactly okay like trevor if you if you and i were like sworn enemies and i was like i want to roast him at this like event uh, i want to humiliate him and i went up there and did like a set and you really liked it that would be like a telltale sign that i'd failed like oh no he should have been crying or like run out of the room mad he shouldn't be enjoying it so especially like people in publishing you know the people who supposedly she hates like you know elite white people if they're giving her a pat on the back you failed miserably those people should be like this book should never see the light of day like I, fuck this book i don't think she failed i think like, she's lying about her goal well, right. I think if she, she were sincere, she yeah, failed. Yeah. Yeah. If she was sincere, you'd be right. <laughs> but I think if they actually hated it, she would be horrified. Yeah. It's I a total fake actual, provocation. Oh, sorry, go on. The sure that she worked for was in the bidding war. So, yeah, I think that was like a gotcha for her when really it's it's like, I don't think she really, I don't know if she, does she understand that? It's more of a critique of the actual book than. <laughs> but, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but she had to do it because there's somebody who's clearly going for success because everything in this book is too calculated to succeed. So there's no way she can rip off so many things. That's, I felt there were some other things being ripped off here besides just get out and everything. But I feel like if there's no way you can 
be that calculated in your pandering and your ripping off, but then be a bomb thrower. Like, you know, and I think what she did was she created these incredible caricatures of racists that most like when did I say about get out a lot of at the end they became allegorical and there was some weird body swapping cult but up until that twist all the racism that people are doing is totally believable white liberal racism you know like I, I would have voted for Obama three times if I could and just bringing up like you know uh, stuff about athletes and all these weird little um, tone deaf microaggressions like everything in there was something that a white liberal can feel um, indicted by and I think maybe one reason why so many white liberals liked it is at the end he pulls a rug out from everything and then renders them a little bit cartoonish you know what I mean but I could also see up until then people feeling like kind of indicted or attacked but these people were cartoonish even before the twist and most white liberals who read this will gonna be like man this person needed to read uh Ibram Kendi. I would never have said that. <laughs> like, in fact, the um, the guy who runs Wagner Books. I just found this out as I was doing this. His name's Richard Wagner, like Richard Wagner, the, the you know anti-Semitic German composer. I don't even know if that's supposed to be a like a winky wink or something. But I was like, what? What is she really? If she meant it to be that, like, really name it after like the Nazi composer? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I feel like that would be too deep a cut for her, based on how superficial her literary vocabulary seems to be based on this book like she seems yeah. to be someone for someone to get mfa in creative non-writing all the references are so uh shallow so i'd be, I'd be shocked if you could do richard, richard uh, actually Brockner. before we go further should we just do a quick uh, summary of the novel in case people have no uh, idea what we're yeah, talking about that's a good idea but i want to give kamari the chance to get oh, out yeah, what, sure. she, what yeah. she was saying unless you think it's something that you think would be better served after the summary i'll leave it up to you um yeah, I can bring it up. It'll come up later, I'm sure. Okay. Okay, but um, from experience, I know I always forget things. So if you want to make a note, say <laughs> so you don't forget it. I always do that myself. Okay. I so, yeah, but um, all right. Who best remembers the plot? It's it's been a little while since we've uh, finished it. So I think I remember the broad like arc of the story. Um, but does anyone have like a very fresh memory? Well, I read it last. I also was speeding through by the end because I just wanted to get it over with. So I'll do my best being the last person that read it. Like uh, these guys read it very quickly very, from the beginning, got it over with. And I was the one dragging my feet because it was so bad. I could only do like a chapter at a time. And then after a while, I said, OK, I'm going to have to just dedicate a day and get this over with because it's like the death by a thousand paper cuts. So anyway, here's what I remember. The main character, whose name is Nella, Working as an assistant, is she an editorial assistant? Would that be her job job title? Um, some uh, something like that. I think uh, I don't really know the publishing industry that well, but yeah, yeah she me neither. Yeah, yeah I don't know. If she's a full blown editorial assistant or something beneath that, but basically, she uh, assists the editors in some some function, right? She uh, does coverage of you know the pages. I I remember that term being in there. She works under this white lady. She's the only black person at her place of work and the book opens to her lamenting it then she smells this hair product in the air and she's looking around and sniffing and trying to think like who's that's coming from and that's a sign that this new black girl has joined the office and she eventually meets her and one thing about this black girl is that she kind of represents a type of authenticity that the main character feels like she lacks her so, name's hazel yeah yeah, her name is Hazel. And Hazel basically is from 
I'm not born in. I think she she lives in Harlem. Was she born in Harlem, or does she just live there? Um, I kind of forget. But she, I mean, there's a terrible passage in the book where she's like, "Hazel bled Harlem like Spike bled Brooklyn," and be like, oh, "So corny." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she Hazel has roots to two of the um, you know, most like um, well-known you know places for like kind of New York Black Bohemians. So she has roots in Harlem. Like she lives in Harlem, I believe, but she also has some kind of hair care charity in Brooklyn. And ironically, she lives on my train. She works on my train stop, the the, the, the Classroom Avenue stop that they mentioned. That's a, my train stop. She gets the whole neighborhood wrong. It's, it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if she actually did good research or what, but so between Harlem and uh, downtown Black Brooklyn, you know? So Hazel's kind of like this stereotype of uh, authenticity and cool, you know, like, and Nella's always feeling kind of insecure around her, but she also wants to impress her and become her friend. And at first it seems like it's happening and that, you know, she has an ally in the workplace, but slowly but surely, Hazel kind of starts like gaslighting her and doing all this stuff to undermine her and acts like she's kind of supporting her, but then um, undercuts her in front of the white people. Like there's this book. And this is one of the examples of the caricatures, right? This, this author comes in to do a meeting with the publisher about his book. And the book is supposed to be pretty good, except it has a horribly stereotypical black girl character in it. And basically, I mean, this girl sounds like Topsy from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like she just is just transported from slave times. It's so over the top, right? Like the idea that sophisticated white liberal author wouldn't know to hide the racism better, you know? And again, this is an example of, I think, how the book is afraid to really go after like white liberals. They want to can create these caricatured, tone-deaf white people. But she, she speaks up. First, she talks to Hazel about how bad this book is. Should she speak up? And then I guess Hazel kind of encourages her to do it or, you know, commiserates with her and everything. But then after she gets in trouble with telling the author the truth about how stereotypical the character is. Yeah, he freaks out. Yeah, and he freaks out. Later on, uh, there's a meeting and Hazel's there and Hazel um, does the opposite of what she said to Nella. And is like, oh, I thought the book was pretty good. It had a lot of good aspects to it and everything and kind of makes... Uh, Nella looks stupid and starts uh, encroaching more and more into like Nella's territory. It's kind of like All About Eve. I don't know if you guys have seen All About Eve. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, how like the understudy kind of ends up taking the main person's popularity and her job and everything. And there's a lot of All About Eve-ness happening where she starts getting some of the work that Nella used to get and starts becoming a rising star in the office and wins over all her white colleagues. But at the same time, is constantly gaslighting Nella, that is her imagination, makes her doubt herself and everything. Or she was like, oh, I think it's a miscommunication. I wasn't undercutting you and everything. And it keeps getting worse and worse until like Nella starts doing some digging because at the same time, she's getting these weird notes telling her to leave the publishing house, like notes saying, hey, get out of Wagner, whatever the name is. And she starts thinking, hey, is this coming from Hazel? And I'm sorry for how I'm describing it in this convoluted way, but there really is no straightforward way to describe this plot. So I'm going to try to wrap it up as fast as I can. So she's wondering if Hazel wrote the notes. Turns out Hazel didn't write the notes. There's like this third party drop squad that is tracking these um, bad news black girls who are the causing OBGs. trouble. What's that? 
The OBGs. Yeah, the OBGs. They're called OBGs. So Hazel is not the only other black girl. Apparently, there's like a network of other black girls where they're almost like sleeper agents, like these black girls who are put into like white workplaces to... What was the the goal? That's a great question. I actually To to just ingratiate themselves, to to be the model minority types. Um, Yeah, that's it. But like, what is what was their goal? Like, because it's almost like the goal was to fuck with whatever black person was already working there more than any larger. Uh, I don't remember quite, quite. But yeah, there is this kind of like revolutionary team that's trying to counter those OBGs, right? And then yeah, and I think they're actually called the resistance too. Kamari, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, are you able to remember what the grand point? of what the OBGs were doing um, actually was. Because this needs to be this kind of... It reminded me of Antebellum in that... Remember there was a kind of vague thing that they had to get rid of Janelle Monet for? Um, but you don't really know what it was. It just had to do with a Trump analog and somehow her wokeness was somehow threatening Trump's re-election chances. Uh, this didn't even have that much of a thought-out goal. Like, at least Antebellum is far out as that premise was. It was somewhat thought out. But I wasn't quite sure what the point of OBGs was was it to get uh was it to get radical literature uh from being printed were they only in publishing houses I can't remember no it said that they had reached like all like form like it, it said it had reached all different parts of America and all different industries because there's at one point where someone in the resistance says like they're like they made a joke it was kind of like a cheeky thing where it was like oh yeah my daughter's seen obgs and one of them is like now in like five different slave movies or something like that oh like yeah one of them was in was an actress so you know, it was kind of weird like this whole well, conspiracy I, seems no, to have no the, deeper purpose than to um fuck with representation basically no, i think the point uh, is that you know kind of like how an antebellum uh, Janelle Monae's, I don't know, appearances on MSNBC were so threatening they had to snuff her out. I think the I think the whole point is to get the Nellas out. Nella and her corporate diversity town halls were such a threat. They need to plant the hazel types to make sure those don't happen. That you know the, the Chartresha character that, who was the stereotype in the book gets published after all uh, because you know Nella is is the big threat uh, from yeah. Nella's point of view. No, I think you're absolutely right. But my problem is, uh, see, and this this is my problem, and, and maybe I didn't make it clear enough, but my problem is, okay, there was at least something tangible that related to power that Janelle Monet's character was threatening. Like the idea was that there was this thinly veiled Trump analog and somehow Janelle Monet's character's totally vapid, bougie um, cable news appearances were somehow just making people so woke he might actually lose the election so okay you understand okay there's a powerful cabal of people who want to run america and the world and they have to create this far-fetched um slavery plantation to preserve their power but what i was trying to ask is even if it's to stop the nullas what are the nullas doing that requires this amount of conspiracy like like so Okay, so more Chartreshas get um, printed, published, and more slave movies, you know, get made or whatever. Uh, okay, what big thing is happening to the white people behind this conspiracy? Like, do they just hate positive representation that much? Like, they have to go through all... That's kind of what, what I'm, I'm trying to say is, like, what is the threat that they're staving well, off outside of good representation for Black people? Like, like, do they just see, like, a good Black role and they're just like, Damn it. You know, and they, 
I don't get why I have to go through all this just to get Chartresha into print and more slave movies made. I guess this is my issue. So the OBGs were made by Richard Wagner in like, um, I guess, in partnership with, it gets kind of convoluted, but it's because of that book, Burning Heart. That's referenced throughout. It oh, yeah, that's, a, that's a whole other thing that we haven't touched. Like the eighties and was really popular written by two black, it was written by a black woman and it was edited by a black woman, Diana and Kendra. And what happened was I think that book was like a huge moneymaker for Wagner, but then Kendra said something about not wanting to like, not wanting to be work with a bunch of white people because she didn't like being around white people. It wasn't like, I went back to the passage and what she said was not even that controversial, especially like thinking about the eighties, there were so many black people who were much more like political and like much more outspoken than they are now. So I was like, but it, but her saying that was so controversial that I guess it caused her to go into hiding. And then like, you know, they were never able to like really profit off of any books that Diana and Kendra made. And so Richard didn't want that to happen again. And so Diana's friend, who is like a chemist, came up with that hair grease. And that's like, that's the reason is that, is that Richard specifically didn't want that type of experience to happen again. Yeah, oh, I, there thought, was a, I, I thought Burning Heart was a financial um, hit, but that Ken, but that- It was, but then Diana didn't make any good books afterwards. Oh, okay. Wasn't like, as her editor, wasn't around anymore. Um, you were saying something, Chris? Uh. I was going to, okay. So I was reading, it was an interview in the LA review of books that they did with uh, Zakia Delila Harris. And she was talking about how, uh, I think Kumar, you're the first one to tell me this. The whole conceit of the hair cream was actually uh, um, her, her white husband's idea. They were on a train and she had this vague idea for this book. And she was like, I need kind of a, a kind of like a, the main thing to hold it all together. And he's like, why not do hair grease? You're always, obsessed with that <laughs> wow That's and it was just such a perfect encapsulation of why, why this book just doesn't work um at least you know for for us it, it seems to seems to but that's that story yeah. also shows why it became clear that all the satire was unintentional because everything she says about herself is just as ridiculous as the thoughts of nella that i thought might be satire like like that is a story that she has no idea why that's why that story about the uh, white husband and the hair grease plot line is uh, bad. But we still haven't finished even the summary because there's so much stuff. There's so many moving parts that don't work, right? So what Kamari said was absolutely right, that there is a parallel plot. It flashes back, back and forth between the present and the past. And that is a part of the book about there's a narrative from the 80s and you're like, okay, what's this narrative? Then it all ties together. And it turns out that the people from the past were, you know, the editors. Oh, also the author, this is Diana's, the author's name, was sleeping with Richard Wagner. So she was also like his his mistress on top of that. And they got together with this chemist friend to make this um, brainwashing hair cream that turns, that makes woke black women unwoke and <laughs> basically become like uh, Stepford, Stepford wives. So not only is she ripping off Get Off, Get Out, but she's ripping out Get Off's influences. Like basically the other black girls kind of um, an assimilated uh, Stepford wife, you know, where, but what's, what's funny is so much of this book is premised on, like you have to buy into the premise that a lot of, uh, you know, these type of black people have that representation is the biggest threat to power there is, or it's the most important thing, or it's what scares you know, the racist the most. That's the only way this book 
makes sense. So basically, they're not trying to like unless some other spiratorial books where like you know we're actually trying to take over black bodies and or try to genocide like you know there's a movie called three to hard where they're trying to introduce something into the water that will make all black men uh i guess sterile or something like trying to actually genocide these people have all this money and power and the biggest thing they can do with it is to try to um make sure good representation doesn't happen you know which is uh and maybe you know to make a little more money i don't i don't know but uh yeah it's pretty also the the idea of like burning heart being this critically important like i mean i like books you know i i think they're very important but but like this is the thing that that like changed the world and and every the whole thing revolves around trying to create another one or blocking another one the whole thing with chartresia is so just full of itself it's like it's like the publishing industry just blowing itself like we're so important but there's also a type of presentism because like what kamaria said is very true that in the 80s, I mean, the 80s had stuff like uh, Sister Soldier and her book, The Coldest Winter, like, you know, being a kind of a hood bestseller. Like, you know, it sold um, a lot. And the, it's presentism. Like, you're taking today, like today's thing now, all black art is basically white sanctioned black art. But there was a whole parallel industry of like, you know, independent black book publishing of these books that would be very um controversial but there would be big hits and then a publishing house would buy it later because it was such a big seller that you know they couldn't deny the marketability of, of this book you know so nowadays a book like burning heart would be praised for being so bold and whatever because now we live in this world where the new black creatives erase past um groundbreaking things and then introduce this lame stuff and they pretend like they're so bold but yeah in the 80s, that would not be a dangerous book at all. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, if you guys don't mind, I want to start uh, reading like direct passages from the novel. I think that will help really highlight all the things we've been talking about. So, uh, sure. So, but, but before you do, let me just say one last thing to finish oh, yeah, the summary, sure. which is basically the thread that I described and the thread that Kamari described come together in that um, Nella discovers the brainwashing plot. Some girls actually volunteer to get brainwashed. Some girls get tricked into being brainwashed. But basically, the story ends with Nella becoming brainwashed and she becomes an other black girl and the resistance kind of fizzles out. And I can't remember, does it end like with an optimistic note, like kind of like how Watchmen did, where there's like the seeds of the destruction? Like, like, because I think there's something where a member of the resistance is still fighting and ends up meeting Nell, the now brainwashed um, Nella. And I don't remember if it was meant to kind of end on a kind of optimistic note, as in somebody's going to take out Nella now, or if it's meant to end in a defeated note, as in that's the final defeat, that Nella's now brainwashed. Um, what were your I remember. Oh, go ahead, Chris. No, I was going to say, honestly, I don't remember. I think, um, yeah, my character's name is Shawnee, I think. I think uh, she is supposed to, like, release some sort of she has like some sort of paperwork or something that explains the whole obg process and then i think she sends it to some publisher or some no someone who works at a newspaper or something and that that's how it ends is that 
it's supposed to be released for everywhere. But even in that part, like I was just looking at it today. She like she talks about how, oh, this is going to be released everywhere. It's going to be on Twitter and everything. and Everyone's going to know me. And I'm just like, what? Like, how was that your first thought? <laughs> like, and and, and you know what else I, I think that's ripped off from? There's a lot of stuff that's ripped off from. I think that comes from the Watchmen comic book. Because uh, if you've ever seen the Watchmen comic book or the original movie, it ends with Rorschach. Uh, sending uh, his journal to the news to be released everywhere to re- uh, reveal Ozymandias' plot. And I was wondering, like, did she rip that off of Watchmen? It seemed a little bit on the nose. I feel like maybe she ripped it off of people who have ripped it off of Watchmen because I think that that's become, like, a pretty common ending. And like she might have watched the Damon Lindelof Watchmen. Like, I can't see her reading Alan Moore, but I could totally see her watching Damon Lindelof's Watchmen because it's a very kind of vapid adaptation and that that was the end of the summary so chris if you want to read some passages now oh yeah sure okay so this is all in okay uh so this is uh, the first thing that i remember highlighting and unfortunately this was actually because it was a kindle thing it, it showed you the passages that people highlighted because they thought it was good and i read this and i was i just like this is one of those things i really thought was satire and I'd be like if there's no satire i could dig it but it's not so this uh so it says so, so the context of this is, and I think this is, I remember this happening in real life. Remember when H&M had that, some, something, I think it had, had a black boy in a monkey uh, suit or something. Like he, he was in a... It was something like the yeah. coolest monkey in the jungle or something like that. Yeah. Or, yeah, and then it was derided as racist and, and people got upset. So, so she, Nella takes a, a six-month boycott of H&M and, and this is a thing that's written. She could see the common thread of perceived subhumanity that ran between the cultural faux pas of major corporations and the continuous police killings of black people. <laughs> five times when she brings up the killing of black people by police and then correlates it to something that has to do with consumption. <laughs> and, and, not, and not even, like if it were a lifetime boycott, that would already be week six months. And it's like, you live in New York, like a major city. I'm pretty sure you could easily boycott H&M if you yeah. really want to Just go to like, um, whatever, uh, Banana Republic or, or whatever the equivalent is. And it, 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 that just honestly just made me question, like, am I, am I missing something? Is this actually a very subversive, ingenious work? Uh, but then th- there's like other parts where it, it's clear that it's not. But th- as I said, that was early on in the book. And it just kind of, um, I think all of us were like, oh my God, I can't believe that was supposed to be straight. Like, <laughs> And if I remember correctly, didn't you say that Nana couldn't give it up because it's too cheap or something? Like- um. Well, it was six months. I guess after six months, she was like, "Yeah, you know, uh, anthropology is too too expensive. I gotta I gotta go back to H and M." But but I think she yeah yeah she said it was it was so basically you said it was because of uh, but somehow it almost made it like worse that it was just like I had to save money you know but um, yeah I mean I mean H and M is not that hard to give up to me right? to me it's just not that great a story you can go to Old Navy if it's the price point thing you know what I mean but mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Like, you know, shop at a black business if you really care. But like, that doesn't even come up in her mind. So. That's a good idea, too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then here's another part where it's quite clear that like, OK, so this is somebody speaking. And, and this is when Wagner is now going to have all these uh, town halls on diversity. So someone's speaking changes in the next month or so. Natalie will be sending out an email to everyone on the Wagner staff, reintroducing a series of diversity town halls. They will be mandatory for all employees. And now this is back in Nella's head. Hazel's doing. That's wonderful, she said robotically, trying to suppress her annoyance, even though it really was wonderful. So yeah, she she really does think this stuff 
is good. And we get clear sense that Nella is the author. So this is what the author really thinks. There is no satire. There's so, there's so many crazy things that have to do with this book. And before I get into my highlighted passages, I want to add a little more context to the, to the bigger picture, you know, because we've given some background context that we gave the plot. But I looked at the acknowledgments again, and there were three bidding wars that I discovered in my research about this book. There was the American bidding war. Then for the UK rights, there was a bidding war. Then there was a bidding war for the Hulu rights. And in this acknowledgement, she first thanks, um, okay, she goes, I could not have asked for a more supportive agency than Sanford J. Greenberger. A special thanks too to my two fierce foreign rights agents, Stephanie Diaz at Greenberger and Vanessa Kerr at Abner Stein, who helped transport the other black girl to lands that only dream my novel will see. She put lands in plural. So maybe there's another foreign payday besides the UK. So she mentions the first thank you acknowledgement is um, it's not to a family or to mentors or anything. The first thing is actually, let me start from the beginning because it's worth it. There are so many people without whom this book wouldn't be possible. First, a big thank you to the amazing team of people who helped me turn my childhood dream into a reality. Stephanie Delman, my lovely agent, who believed in this project from the very beginning. Thank you for your dedication, your faith, and for always being just one text message away. I couldn't have asked for a more sharpful and more thoughtful agent than you, and I couldn't have asked for a more supportive agency than Sanford J. Greenberger. That, I think, covers the American uh, rights in auction. Then a special thanks to my two fierce foreign rights agents, Stephanie Diaz at Greenberger and Vanessa Kerr at Abner Stein, who both helped transport the other black girl to lands I had only dreamed my novel would see. So now I'm thinking besides the UK, there might've been some other place. So that covers that, the foreign rights. Then she um, does her editor and some other people, but basically she's, she's um, shouting out all the people who helped her book sell, basically. Then she gets to, um, there's a part here. Okay, she goes, I'd be remiss to say I wasn't granted the utmost good fortune of having two additional editors to help me push this book to new heights. Chelsea Johns, and I should look up these people to see how many of them are black, because I think it would be kind of ironic if all the people who greenlit this, this horrible book as editors are white people. But uh, Lindsay uh, is white. I looked her Okay, so there's Chelsea Johns. and I'm Very confident they're all white. Yeah, and, <laughs> and my UK editor, Alexis Kirschbaum, which sounds like a Jewish name, so I'm sure she's not black. Uh, Chelsea, thank you for taking each and every single sentence that is novel to heart and for being so generous with your time and help. Alexis, thank you for your enthusiasm. That was palpable from all the way across the pond. Mentions more people at the publishing company. Then she goes, in addition to crossing continents, the other black girl has also been given the opportunity to cross mediums. Thank you so much to my very helpful film slash TV agents at UTA, Addison Duffy and Jasmine Lake, and to Tara Duncan and my entire team at Temple Hill for showing me the ropes and believing in the storage potential to reach even wider audiences. So that confirms the idea that all the sales, including to Hulu and to who knows what other places, because that's a pretty big team. I'm guessing she probably got some TV writing and movie writing gigs in addition, like this book has sold so many places for so much money before it was even typeset based on the fact that this acknowledgement covers all of that, which is just insane to me. Like who does, I, I, usually in those things, um, you know, it, you do thank agents first. I think family is always safe for last and stuff, but does she think, for example, any instructors, like teachers, uh, 
um, friends who proof like kind of like give her feedback? Because or is it all just mostly agents? Like mostly agents and and publishers and editors. Then there is um, her work wife, her former work wife and dear friend Genevieve um, that she would spend time with. I wonder if that was her original other black girl. Remember she's uh, yeah. Genevieve. She said, and then her her husband. And then last, but certainly not least, all the gratitude in the world goes to my mother and father who nourished the love of reading, but no actual creative mentors, you know? Right. Which, I, I think that's very telling because, you know, you, yeah. obviously, you, like, of course, you should thank your agents and all those people. Obviously, you're going to thank your family. But all, anytime I look at the acknowledgements, usually they'll have, they'll list all these people, usually like five to 10 people who over the years helped um, give them feedback and workshop their pieces. But it seems... Like this just went straight from like second draft to to Hulu. <laughs> just like, and yeah, you can tell because crazy. there's, I mean, I, I think there is a good book in here somewhere. I don't know if she could have written it. I, I kind of doubt it, but I think there is, you could have written something really sharp and great about, because like the publishing industry is, it's full of shit. It's so, it so deserves to be taken down, but this just seemed like it was like done on contract. Like, okay, we, we need basically somebody to, to do this. We, we need, like like the hot young black writer of the summer, you seem to fit the mold for whatever reason. We just need you to write something, and we'll take care of the rest. It, it, that's what it feels like. I forgot the second. I forgot the second book that this is a highly ripoff of, and that's the Devil Wears Prada. I think it's safe to call this Devil Devil Wears Prada meets Get Out. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm probably I, missing I think that was the object. comp that yeah. was actually yeah. used. Uh, I saw it somewhere. I think yeah, it, it was. Which are like two movies. <laughs> yeah. Not- like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Devil Wears Prada actually was a book first, but I would not be surprised uh, if she didn't read it. I don't know, but uh, yeah, Get Out was only um, a movie. But I mean, it's not like a very literary book. Um, uh, um, Devil Wears Prada. I, no, I it was like it's, it's kind chiclet, of a middle Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a chiclet. Um, I'm looking at this this article. Just give me an example of the um, type of coverage. New York Times wrote this is the headline: Her book doesn't go easy on publishing. Publishers ate it up. And that's such bullshit. It goes so easy. <laughs> that's on, why they ate it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It goes ironically, it goes easy on publishing by going extra hard on publishing. What I mean by that is it creates such ridiculous caricatures of the racist publishers and editors and authors that no white person working in publishing today is gonna see themselves in those characters that would be like if i read turner diaries and i felt like it was talking about me like 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 no black person is going to see the characters of black people in turner's diary like they might get offended in principle about black people being presented this way but you know yeah it's just kind of ridiculous that they say that and it goes on about um you know i want to get all the okay so, so here it goes it's sold this is what New York Times article says. It has captivated the publishing industry's attention since it's sold at, at auction to Atria Books for more than $1 million, a television series uh, whose pilot is uh, Harris's writing with Rashida Jones is planned for Hulu. And then um, the rest of it is pretty, pretty ridiculous. It just talks about her work history and everything. But I want to make sure I get all the auctions because th- that really undersells it. So... Um, before we get to more passages, I just want to, where, where is it? Okay. So she got a six figure. There was a nine, there was a nine way auction, right? And what happened is Alexis Kirschbaum bought UK and Commonwealth rights from Vanessa Kerr at Abner Stern on behalf of Stephanie Delman. Basically, so that's a, 
six figure deal, right? Okay. Then there's a seven figure deal that happened. So that was a nine way auction. Nine people bid for the UK and Commonwealth rights. Then I guess the Commonwealth is the other lands that she was talking about. Then there's the US deal, which is a seven figure deal. That's 15 imprints making offers. So uh, that's the one that is was mentioned as being um, over 1 million. So she might be at, I don't, I don't like to count people's money or like, you know, pocket watch, but I think it's important to, to talk about. So basically she might be at 2 million at this point, depending on how far over 1 million and how high in the six figures, like the other deal deal was, but then the Hulu deal, um, let me make sure I get it right. It was, it was called a very competitive bidding war. And I want to make sure I get it right. So um, Hulu strikes overall deal with former Netflix exec Tara Duncan uh, for other black girl. And this one, I should have had this ready. This one doesn't give the the figures. It just is highly, highly competitive. But um, actually, that's a surprisingly sparse article. There's Actually, you guys, can, you guys can continue talking with the passages. If I find it before we end, I'll... Well, I, I do want to comment on it. I do think, though, they, they vastly overpaid because I don't really know how actually popular this book was because, Trevor, you said that, you know, I think the equivalent of this book that came out the year before or something was such a fun age. And you said a lot of your friends, I think especially like white women, they'd all read the book and they were all talking about it, but nobody was talking about this book. Is that is that right? Is that what you said? Such a fun, such a fun age. Um, shout out to Kylie, Kylie Reed, uh, the author. She sent me a copy of, of the book. And uh, that book, I've seen black women read that book. I've seen people read the book on the train. I've seen it on book tables. Like I remember being on the train. So yeah, uh, I didn't say uh, just white women, though I have known white women who have read the book, but I do recall seeing people in general um read the book. I've seen white women read it. I've seen um, black women read it. I've not seen anybody read this book as of yet. And I don't recall, I don't go to bookstores like I used to, especially with the pandemic, but I don't recall seeing it on tables either. But unlike movies and like network TV, I've been trying for a while. It's not easy to find sales of books. It's not a very transparent no, they are on purpose. It's probably because if you found out the numbers, people would get dismayed at how low it is. Uh, yeah, but it would also be hard to make fake narratives. Right, like, exactly. And is it because yeah. I think with a movie, you can kind of tell, like you go to the theater, there's going to be a line. If there's no line, you can't really lie and say, yeah, this made like $100 million this weekend. Like I didn't even see anyone in the theater. But in a book, yeah, you can just kind of, it's like few people read anyway, relatively speaking. So you just make up whatever story you want. Yeah, I, even nowadays when you can check with a little bit of legwork like for example with insecure all these articles came out making it sound like the most a cult biggest cultural phenomenon ever and then when you look up like the ratings it's like holy crap this thing is like no rating you know but um you wouldn't tell that from you wouldn't tell that from you know seeing seeing the coverage so if they're willing to lie like that when um you can double check then if they can hide it, then they can really go to town with the narrative. So yeah, I think books kind of probably hide that on purpose. Do those bidding words have, like, do they have um, any rules? Like, like, does it have to sell a certain amount for her to get like a full, like, do they have anything that protects the actual publisher to like actually make money? Because uh, I'm like sure there's, with most auctions, there's usually a, a, a starting bid. So my guess is that they probably started with a bid that will, um, you know, that's the bare minimum that, that they'll take. So that probably um, protects them. 
You know, like, like they can't just come in with a ridiculously low ball bid, I believe. Um, I'm going to read some passages that I have listed as corny references because so, I noticed that there were so many and um, I highlighted all of them as I was reading. So I'll just read them all. So first one, but the girl was staring at Nella like she just proclaimed she'd never seen the color purple. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Even though Hazel dripped Harlem like Spike dripped Brooklyn, something about her had Nella to presume she'd end up with a white guy like Owen too. I mentioned that before, the whole Harlem and Brooklyn thing. And then this whole like obsession was swirling. I, I have a whole list of quotes from that as well, but you got a sneak preview there. This uh, look- uh, Isn't it real quick about the swirling thing? Did you find it weird that they kind of undersold that her boyfriend was white? Like it's it undersold it in a conspicuous way and then suddenly brings it up like, after talking about him a lot, you know, and makes it important later. But she seemed at the same time, like she was talking about Nella being afraid of mentioning that her boyfriend was white right away. But interestingly, Zakia, the author, also seemed kind of hesitant to um, reveal it in the book as well in the beginning. Mm, yeah, I have enough passages talking about that subject that I can tell she's like very like transfixed on it. But I think yeah. it was kind of, you know, eased into it. And then, and then she went on and, and really kind of, yeah, exactly. Uh, She's clearly transfixed on it based yeah. on how much she talks about it once it's introduced, but she waits a conspicuously long time to start mentioning that he's white. Mm-hmm. He okay. not in the book and would have made no difference to the plot whatsoever. Yeah. He, he's such a like worthless character anyway. Um, okay. So this one, next one, if I remember correctly, this is like a password that the resistance people, uh, or like trying to test her on. So uh, this is some guy talking. This lucky motherfucker is either Stacy Dash or Ben Carson. Who do you choose to save? It's like, oh my God. <laughs> Next one. We paint her to black explain cultural moments to people who didn't understand them. Like the seriousness of Kanye's mental breakdown or the significance of seeing black women wear protective scarves in Girls Trip. Look, I watched Girls Trip. I really like that movie, but it's like, really? <laughs> um... Okay. Oh, this is, this is bad. Okay. So context for this, cause it's a quote, um, her, uh, Nella's friends are telling Hazel, uh, Nella's friends are telling her that Hazel might be the one sending the threatening letters. So this is Nella. What? That's crazy. She sent me a family matters gift today. Why would you think that? <laughs> Another like great satire potential, but no, this is just played straight. <laughs> yeah. It could have been so good. Uh, if, if done with a deft hand or, or yeah. self-aware hand, but the lack of self-awareness in this was just incredible. Yeah. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.